Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Yeah, this is Lee Eisenberg. I play Pam Beasley on The Office. No, don't do that. That was just a story of the whole thing? Yeah. This is Lee Eisenberg. I was a writer-producer on The Office. That's fine. Hello, everybody. Here I am again. Pam Beasley. No. Uh, Brian Baumgartner with another enlightening episode of The Office Deep Dive today. We are continuing our conversation with the writing staff of The Office. So you are going to hear my conversation with the hilarious Lee Eisenberg. Lee and his writing partner, Gene Stupnitsky, joined the show at the beginning of season two. Uh, Lee and Gene, they were basically attached at the hip. Best friends. They lived together. They drove to work together every day. They ate lunch together. They wrote together. Everything. Well, except this interview. They, they didn't do that together. But The Office uh, was their first real TV writing job. And as you will hear, they were more than a little nervous to be running with the big dogs, so to speak. And I have to say, it was so funny for me to hear that they felt like that. Because to me, like on set, they were always just completely self-assured. Like, these are the brilliant, twisted minds that brought you our cringiest episodes, right? Dinner Party and Scott's Tots. I mean, that is who we are dealing with here. So, yeah, it's kind of mind-boggling to me. Lee and Jean, 
if you can hear me out there, just what I want you to do right now is I, I want you to look into the mirror and I want you to tell yourselves, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. In fact, that goes for all of you. You're all great. People like you. So there you go. From me to you. There's, there, there it is. Anyway, let's get, let's get back on track here. Without further ado, here is Lee Eisenberg. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning. Left over from the night before. This is like, uh, I think it's like summer camp. It's like you come back and you just like see people and you're like, hey. Well, I know. I, I mean, I've talked to Jenna. Yeah. Rain. Angela. Quapus. It's such a fucking like, I haven't seen you in so long. I know. And I love you. I know. I, I know. It's way. so stupid. <laughs> um, this is all recording now, right? This oh, is it's just totally our love, all recording. No, it's totally all recording. Yeah. <laughs> um, I bumped into Rain. I bumped into Jenna somewhere. I haven't seen Angela in forever. I never see Quapis. I hadn't seen Quapis in a really long time. And I I hadn't seen Randall in a while. Yeah, I saw Rand. Randall and I would like grab like breakfast like once a year to kind of just like talk about work and have a nice breakfast. Who paid? It varied. It varied. Oh. I don't remember who paid for the last I'm one. I'm trying to think who was who supporting paid? who. Yeah, like who was I don't know. That's a really good question. Whenever I'm in doubt, I always pay because then I don't want it to feel like <laughs> I took you to breakfast. Like why don't we like like the why forty dollar bre- the forty dollar <laughs> breakfast is like not worth anything. Um, I didn't prepare for this at all. I've never seen the office before. No, I, no, it's totally fine. I I was. Uh, so what's amazing is no joke. I watched last night the fight, the return. Wow, dinner party. Wow. And Scott's Tots. You know that there's a uh, there's a Reddit thread devoted to people. Gene was telling me it's like people can't watch Scott's Tots. Yes, this is true. I no, I get this all the time because you know we I doing colleges and meeting fans at right. various events. And by the way, the Scott's Tots shirts are very prevalent. Is that at right? These fans events. Yes, Scott's. <laughs> yeah, the Scott's Tots shirts. And then sometimes even the people who are wearing the Scott's Tots shirts uh-huh. say, it's the one episode I can't, I can't watch. And so I started engaging about why, because to me, dinner party is equally as cringy right. as Scott's Tots. And they're like, oh, dinner party is my favorite. And I'm like, hold on. How is that one okay? I have and, a theory. Okay. Well, you go ahead. My theory is that dinner party, it, you're watching him destroy his life, and then in Scott Stotts, you're watching him destroy other people's lives. Okay. What they say is that basically in dinner party, he's making characters go through uncomfortable, cringy moments, right. but we know them, and we know their relationship right, to right, Michael, right, right. whereas now there's he's like, he's, other people. He's like, he's taking a show out to the world. He's taking a show to the world. We don't have any connection. We just right. know it's horrible. Right, right, right. And, oh, gosh, so good. I haven't seen Scott's Tots in a little bit. It is so uncomfortable. It is. It really is. And that came from your brain, which makes it even weirder. 
but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, all right. So you, what were you doing before you joined the writing staff of the office? I was an assistant to directors and, you know, writer's assistant. And then Gene was a nanny. You were writing together though. We were writing together. We sold some ideas to Larry David for curb. Okay. And then we came up with a pilot idea that was about two codependent roommates with unisex names. And it was about me and Gene. <laughs> the, and then we decided to make it magicians. Okay. And then, we, and then we changed the names to Lonnie and Gordo. Lonnie for League, Gordo for Gene. I got that. Yeah. <laughs> you, you. Are you following? Yeah, I'm following. And Thank then, you. Uh, and then that's what Greg read. That's how we got hired on The Office. Okay, so you submitted this spec pilot script that you wrote. Well, so we sold it to Fox. The pilot was the first thing we'd ever sold. Okay. So we sold it to Fox, and then it was like this crazy thing. Like The people who liked it were Greg Daniels and Harold Ramis. Those are the only two. I mean, I think other people liked it fine, but like for years it was like, oh, like Gene was Harold Ramis' nanny. I'm mean, not Harold's nanny, but his kid's nanny. He wasn't taking care of Harold. He wasn't taking care of Harold. Okay. And so when you were brought on for a meeting with Greg Daniels, did you know, well, first of all, did you know the British office? Yeah. We knew the British office and there had been six episodes of the American office. Right. And had you watched that? Oh yeah, we were obsessed. We were big fans of the, we got the British office really early. Because I was working for a guy who had gotten, you remember like the DVD kind of got like passed around? Yes. So we watched it and we like couldn't believe that it existed and it was just insane. And then when they announced the American version, my friend was Kevin Riley's assistant. So we got to see the American version early and we're like, oh, these poor fuckers. And then <laughs> we saw it and was like, oh, that's really good. Oh, okay. We were really into it. And then, and again, we were like, Gene made $8,000 the year before he was on The Office. And I wasn't that far ahead of him. And so it was like, now all of a sudden we're sitting down with Greg Daniels. It was incredible. Yeah. And how did that meeting go? He had read your the script that you sold. He read the script and people warned us that Greg would do long meetings. And we're like, okay. And Greg was very serious. He took a lot of pauses. And my instinct out of like a desperate need to be liked and like fit in is like, oh, you fill in the pauses and you kind of like make jokes and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, he's obviously very funny. He's not demonstrating any, <laughs> right? <laughs> he's not near funny right now, right. but he's obviously a very funny person and he's not trying to make us laugh. And he must think that we're funny because we're here. So I was just like, I went against every instinct of my, that I had and I just was quiet and just waited for his next question. Right. And then at one point, Gene said, he said, oh my God, Harold's taught us so much. And I was like, what has Harold taught us? We like smoke weed with him. He hasn't taught us anything. I love him, but he hadn't taught us anything. And Greg was like, what has he taught you? I was like, fuck, 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 fuck. And then I was like, um, Harold always says to write from theme, which by the way, Gene and I don't do. It was just the only thing that I could ever think that Harold had said. And Greg got really excited and he flipped through his like Unabomber notebook and he held up this page on the top of the page. It said, theme is important in like block letters. And I was like, I think that was good. I think that was good. And then we met with him for two and a half hours. And then our agent was like, don't read anything into that. Greg has really long meetings. I was like, who the fuck sits down with people for two and a half hours and doesn't hire them? And then we got a call and just, it was like crazy. And we had turned down, we turned down other jobs to get the office and the office was six episodes and the others were for 22. And we were just like, let's work on something good. And we had no, I mean, that makes a lot of sense now, but at the time we just right. needed money. Right. I had a friend tell me as I was in guest star land for yeah. essentially the first 12 and my friend was like, you have got to get out of there. Like you cannot, 
keep doing this. You've got it. And I was like, no, I think this is, this is good. And I, I've been talking a lot with people who, you know, like what was the special sauce or like what made it so special? And to me, your story fits in perfectly. The actors, Ben, Greg, everybody in some way was an underdog. Yeah. And everybody was just really focused on doing good work. And nobody knew any better. I mean, we'd never been in a writer's room before, so we didn't know anything. And so in a writer's room, if you pitch a joke and people don't like it, they don't tell you they don't like it. It's just you're met with silence, and then you extrapolate the silence to mean move on. But we didn't know that, so we thought that maybe like people couldn't hear. And so like I remember Gene (laughs) saying to Paul once, like, did you hear what I said? And then like stuff like that would happen a lot. And then I pitched I I I pitched something and because you thought they were being rude. Well, I didn't didn't respond. Well, just not the way that people interact with each other. You don't you acknowledge someone, you say, like, oh, I'm not sure that's right for me. But like if you did, you know, you're generating thousands of jokes a day. Like if you did every single joke and explain why it's not right, you wouldn't get anything done. That's funny, Lee. I don't think it works for this moment. (laughs) Should we think of an yeah, no one does that. Lee, keep going. Right. It was just weird, and we didn't know what we were doing. And then um, everyone would go out to lunch together. They would all kind of like run to their cars, and like five people would pile into a car. And then Gene and I would like get into like our Camry. It just we felt like we were the new kids, and we didn't fit in. And so I think our contract was like twenty weeks. It was ten weeks with an option for another ten weeks or something like that. And we were ten. We were getting close to ten weeks, and we were we were nervous, but we also kind of felt like no one's that nice to us. I think we're going to get fired anyways. Can we, can we quit? And, uh, and we called our agent and we said, we, uh, he's like, Hey, so you're, you're almost up. You know, you're going to, you know, we're going to try getting you those other 10 weeks. We said, well, what if we want to quit? And he said, well, I don't understand what you're asking. <laughs> and we said, well, like, you know, people aren't that nice to us. Like we're fourth graders at the new school. And he was like, this is the stupidest question anyone's ever <laughs> asked me. And he just, it was Mark Provazero who represented me and sure. Gene and Mindy and BJ. And he was like, dumbest question I've ever been asked. And he hung up on us. Right. And then we stayed on the show <laughs> for five more years. Were you close to being fired, do you think? Or do you was that just your perception? Because people well, didn't seem nice. I think that when you say people didn't seem nice, I really feel young. I think that the um, you know, when you're acting and when you first start acting and you're like, the scene isn't about you, and you're like, you want to go up to the director and be like, hey, did you like what I was doing? Right. And you think the scene's about you, even though no one cares about you because the scene isn't about you. That's the way I felt about the writer's room was I was like, they're scrutinizing us every moment. And they weren't. Greg had 85,000 other things to worry about than the staff writer's happiness or our contributions. We were we were contributing. But I think for us, it was like, Gene and I would drive back and forth. We lived together and we'd have like a 45 minute commute every day, each way. And all we would do was just say like, hey, Paul laughed a little bit at that joke I said in the small room. Really? Do, did, how did it go with Mike and Jen in the other room? Did BJ acknowledge you today? I mean, it was like we were parsing out the smallest little things. And then Greg got pneumonia season two while we were breaking the fight. So we had to outline the fight. Everyone else got to outline the episodes kind of more as a group. And for us, it was like me and Gene and Paul and everyone else was off on script. And then we had to go meet Greg at his house because he had walking pneumonia. And it was like, oh, they're setting us up to fail. They gave us this episode that's like right. goofy and different from the rest of the show. There's like a fight in a dojo. Like they don't want us to do well. And then when we hand in a bad script, they'll fire us. This is what we were convinced of. I think right. we didn't I think we didn't feel confident that we weren't going to be fired until three years in. I'm not kidding. Every single time, like 
when we wrote the secret, we were like, they gave us the secret because there's not a lot of time and then we won't deliver and then they'll fire us. That's how we went through the first few years. What? Wait, we liked everyone eventually, but we were terrified. It wasn't like a culture of fear. It was just two insecure guys who you shared You were just an worried about yourself. Oh, we were terrified. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I'm really sorry to hear that. Thanks. I mean, it doesn't surprise me. You're a bit neurotic, but. <laughs> but I've monetized the neuroses. That's all that matters. Yeah. Why do you think that Greg hired you and Gene? I think it was part of some program that was. That's what I think. <laughs> I mean, that's right? the only thing it's I can like really you think of. You have to hire. Right. Yeah. A certain percentage of. Well, Gene morons. was living below the poverty. Yeah. Oh, it was charitable. Yeah. Oh, okay. I think that he was just really good at spotting people that fit the tone that he was going for. And I think. We wrote that pilot, and that pilot was about underdogs, and the jokes were very specific and unexpected. And before we even understood like how to make an act one, you know, like the way I would talk about act one now, I couldn't have articulated it then. But like somehow we kind of knew enough. And I think there was enough promise there that I think he I think he took a chance. Also, we're inexpensive and we were two people for the price of one. That's really why I thought it was. Yeah. I think that that's not an unreasonable yeah. thing. I was like, eh, both of them probably don't actually equal one great writer, yeah. but we get two. Yeah. So we can at least move them around in different Absolutely. rooms. Absolutely, yeah. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. 
from iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What was the office writer's room like? How was it different from other writer's rooms? I think that it was, uh, in some ways, it was looser. It's like we, it would take us a long time to focus. But it's like you're writing a show about an office, you're writing a show about coworkers, and we're working in an office and we're coworkers. We just happen to be writing a show about the thing. So, you know, we played Call of Duty a lot and then we did an episode about Call of Duty or everything is fodder. I remember going into the editing bay one time uh, and I was having a conversation with Dave Rogers. And somebody kind of whizzed by the door and they were like, okay, one minute. And someone else is like, you ready, Dave? And I'm like, what is going on? He goes, it's Call of Duty time. (laughs) And literally, the screens from editing the show became Call of Duty. And you guys were somehow interconnected. Everybody would run to their battle stations and start playing Call of Duty. No, so I think like it all turns into something. You know what I mean? Like when you're doing a show where it's just about people trying to make it through the day, everything becomes up for grabs. So you come in and I would talk about my date from the night before and all of a sudden that could be, you know what I mean? Like the problem with the writer's room, I mean, the beauty of a writer's room and the trickiness of it is you don't know what you're doing from day to day. And as experienced as everyone is, it feels like you're starting over every single time because you want to do something that nobody else has done before. And if you're Greg and you're excellent at it, and you feel like you have all these great actors and writers and whatever, you just keep you just keep pushing, you just keep trying idea and idea and idea until you finally come up with hopefully the best one. But you're not, it's not like somebody says, like, what if you do an episode about a dinner party? And everyone's like, yes. And then you just start writing an episode of a dinner party. Like months or months are spent debating it. There's like 
there's probably amazing office outlines. There was something that, um, I don't think it was our idea, but we were going to write, it was called The Premonition. And it was basically that Aaron is like, I don't want to say anything. And everyone's like, what is it? And she's like, I had a dream last night that someone died on the way home from work. And she's like, the only reason I want to say it is because I predicted something else years ago and it did come true. And so then just like, some <laughs> people didn't want to leave the, <laughs> people didn't want to leave work. And we outlined it. Like Gene and I were in the office. I remember working on the premonition and it was like, there was a faction of people that were like, it was a bullshit and a faction that didn't. And Jim was on one side and Pam was on another. But we like, for a day, we worked on the premonition. There were act breaks and somewhere there's notes on a, on a long lost office episode. And there's, there's probably, you know, a dozen of those. Well, Dozens there there is an there is a a script that was never produced. Uh, Pet Day was that before you? Oh, Pet Day was before me. I read Pet Day. There's another script about like a uh, new hire. New hire. Yeah, there's gonna be like a new hire in the office. Oh, it feels like that is the name of an episode that actually got produced. It sounds like it, it sounds like we probably did new hire four times. <laughs> so that's why you were, right. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. Um, is there a moment? that you remember just a great joke that got lost. Justin Spitzer wrote a talking head where Dwight explains what happens when you fart is that a million tiny shit particles <laughs> explode at once, but you can't see any of them. They're invisible to the eye. And I was just like, this is incredible because what a weird <laughs> specific Dwight thing to talk about. Right. And I have no idea what happened to it. I don't know what episode it was for. <laughs> that might've been. NBC, right? Just being like, no. I don't know guys. if he said shit, but yeah, it was that was crazy. Right. There was a thing in dinner party that I think must be in the extras where Pam's trying to eat because the dinner's so late. And she sneaks upstairs with Jim and she has a protein bar. And she starts eating the protein bar. And we basically had Jan like a horror movie. She just shows up. She just <laughs> appears. And she's like, really, Pam, at a dinner party. Just like so disappointed. And Jim, it was the beginning of Jim selling out Pam. Right. And he's like, I Jan, I had nothing to do with this. And she, you know, and then Pam's mad at Jim. And, uh, but that was, that was very funny. Based on your recollection. Yeah. What episode came in that was changed the least? Was there an episode that you remember that it was just like, it was handed in and it was okay. No, we're good with that. I mean, I don't want to, I mean, dinner party is like that. I mean, I think, you know, so a lot of the work that the writers did on it in a way kind of happened before. But I think we did a really good job with it. The big, the big change in the original draft of Dinner Party, uh, Jan intentionally drove over her neighbor's dog. She oh. killed the neighbor's dog, and she claimed it was an accident, but you knew it wasn't. <laughs> and then we changed it where she wrote "fuck" on the neighbor's dog. Okay. And uh, yeah, so that was a change. But I think Dinner Party probably like changed like five percent. And so there, and you know, there's a double-edged sword where if you write a very good first draft. Sometimes it's like, oh, thank God. And then the room kind of works on it for a day. And if you write a terrible draft, the room is forced to work on it for a week. And then now all of a sudden you have this like collective rewriting a script from scratch. And sometimes those become the best episodes. Right. Whereas like we did Michael's birthday, which I think is a good episode, but it's not one of my favorites. And we handed in a draft that I think was like a, a B. And I think the episode's a B plus. And so if you hand in a B script, it might go to a B plus. And if you hand in, if you hand in a C, we're not going to shoot a C script. So now everyone has to work really hard and you work really late and that might become an A minus or an A. Right. You know? That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, how much communication did you have, if at all, with actors about stories? I mean, 
every so often Jenna would come up to the writer's room and say, hey, I don't know if you guys want to use like there was never it never felt I've worked on shows where it feels like the actors are kind of it's a little bit more of an edict or it's like, oh, we got to indulge them. And with The Office, it was a little bit more of Steve would say to Greg or, you know, or we'd be on set one day and say like, oh, this thing happened. You know, I was at my hockey league and such and such happened. And you're like, oh, okay, great. And then you would kind of take it. The thing we'd always talk about, it was also because there were writers that were actors that were in the writer's room. The coolest thing that an actor could ever do is if like Steve would pitch like a Jim and Pam story. He's that's why he's like the the all-time great number one on the call sheet is like he just wanted the show to be great. It wasn't about him, it was about the show. We always talked about that. That's amazing. How do you think the writers room specifically was impacted by the fact that a number of the writers were actors on the show? I think that it all just felt the lines were blurred, I guess kind of in a good way, like the fact that you guys were kind of stuck in that bullpen you just kind of were interacting with everyone so much more than I think on an average show. Like on a normal show, it might be that Kevin's character would be in two days of work, which maybe would have been nice for you. Uh, you'd be a better golfer. But <laughs> but like from the perspective of like interacting with everyone, we became friends from the show. And there's just other people that you just kind of felt that connection with. And I think BJ and Mindy and Paul were also to say like, hey, it feels like we haven't done something like this. And the one thing that sucked about it was they're all credible writers and then they'd be Gone. in the background of scenes right? and you wouldn't have them. You know, something that a lot of people probably don't realize was it wasn't an accident that Ryan and Kelly and Toby were back in the annex. Right. So they didn't have to be there all the time. Yeah. yeah. They were able to do sort of their, I guess, main job as writers and be <laughs> up with you guys right. while we were down below. So you talked about showing up every day and it feeling like it started over. You launched it. Right. What was your typical day like as you were um, breaking stories? How did that work? How was the structure of your day? So a writer's room is so tricky and the office was the same way is there's so many things happening at once. So theoretically, there's an episode being shot. Then there's a new episode that there's going to be a table read in five days or four days. You're probably doing a rewrite for the table read. Then there's editing happening of an episode or two episodes that were shot two weeks earlier. And then you need to get the next episode because there's a table read the following week, or maybe there's a, maybe an episode changed or you realize that this thing worked really well in editing. So you're like, you know what? Let's really carry that through. Like, okay, we're going to arc out Dwight and Angela because Dwight and Angela is playing so well. I know we've broken that episode already. We need a new B story because Dwight and Angela is the thing that people are digging. Right. Well, you just brought up something. It felt like the writers on The Office were really keeping their pulse on what people were talking about online, what the fans or online forums at the time were well, talking so new. about. It was so right. new. Like it wasn't, you know, there was office tally. And right. I always felt like if these 40 people that are commenting on this office tally thing, if they only knew that as soon as the episode dropped, that the entire writing staff of the office was just crowded around a computer, refreshing like crazy to see if they liked the B story. Right. You know what I mean? It was like they had so much power. I mean, you you have to take some of that stuff in stride and know that it's not your entire audience and that the show is being watched by millions of people and that these I literally think it was probably 40 that they are that they are just they're rabid. But you're aware of it, you know what I mean? And you but I, I never I never felt like we were running towards that stuff. I always felt I always felt like the writer's room kind of had its own pulse and it's like, this was making us laugh a lot. And so that's kind of what we were chasing. 
And I think also when, when you look back and you watch it, it feels like some of the choices are so confident and so like inevitable. But that inevitability to make it feel like that takes months and months and months of like, you, you go down all these different avenues. And so when you finally make the choice, and it goes through multiple rewrites, and then you have these actors do it, and you know what I mean? Everything comes together. It feels like, oh, that was the exact right choice. But like we debated Jim and Pam in Casino Night for weeks and weeks and weeks. There were multiple, you know, drafts of it and different versions of it. And what does he say? And what doesn't he say? And what does she, you know? Right. And and whatever choice we made or whatever choice Greg made at the time, that sets off what the next season is. Right. You know? And so it's not as simple as like, oh, we know we're leading to a kiss or we know we're leading to a slap. It's like you're trying every, you're going down every path. Right. Something that is interesting to me was that when people were watching an episode of The Office, they were watching it sort of at the same time that it was happening, mm-hmm. right? So like all networks do this. When it's Christmas, you're going to see a Christmas episode, right? But Greg sort of took that further and to extrapolate that out, that if the cameras weren't there, we weren't airing episodes. That means that we don't get to see that action that happened. And having the audience have to work to figure out what happened brought a really great active dynamic yeah. to the watching. No, look, I think I've, it makes people lean in when you do stuff like that because they have to catch up. I feel like the Sopranos would do that a lot. Yeah, it's it's cool storytelling. And I think that uh, having a show where the love story was so compelling and then having a show where the comedy was really high that's rare, you know, and I think that usually you get one without the other. And I think the fact that so many people would watch a show and some people would watch it for both of those reasons. And some people were like obsessed with Jim and Pam. And then there's 12 year old boys that don't care about Jim and Pam at all. And are just like, Dwight's crazy. And I like the way that Kevin talks. Right. You know, was there a favorite kind of story that was your favorite kind to write for, for the show? You know, I think different writers had different ways of approaching the show. And I think that Gene and I really liked the cringe comedy of the British one. That's a comedy engine that we really dug and trying to make it as grounded as possible, but also just like sitting in the moments for a really long time as a character just says the wrong thing. And then just, you can't get out of it. The other one that we wrote and we directed was The Lover which is a real brutal half hour yes. also. Yes. Which is just, you know, Jim, I mean, uh, Pam and Michael. And it's like Pam finding out that Michael is dating her mom is like just too much for her to take. Yeah. And it just, I mean, it's that to me is some of Jenna's greatest performance. And John is amazing in that episode. <laughs> I mean, it's just great. Yeah. I watched that one on a plane, actually. I think I was with Gene years after The Office. And I was just laughing the entire time. And she was like, you're just watching. Like, people were like, what is this guy watching? And then it was our thing. I was tickled with our words. Yeah, that you, that you wrote it. Yeah. There's, maybe this is too, like, weird and esoteric, but it's interesting when you start really looking at specific episodes. My guess is it wasn't, all right, guys, we need something really cringy here, <laughs> right? But it's more like the way that you write it, the way that you approach it, it just sort of becomes that. That's fascinating to me. You start to see your own personalities within it, even though it is a collaborative process. Yeah, and I think, I, I mean, that's what was so great about the show. And again, I think that it wasn't that me or Gene was only capable of writing jokes where the audience wanted to cover their eyes. You know what I mean? And I don't think that Mike Shore only wrote jokes that were like this. But I do think that sure, everyone's of kind of coming at it from a different place. And I think that 
you know, I think that Mike kind of saw the best in them. And so a lot of Mike's episodes, I like kind of almost had an optimism to them. Oh, interesting. Mike, sure. Yeah. Which is great. And like Mike's one of the greatest comedy writers I've ever worked with. He's amazing. And I'm not saying one's bad or one's good. I'm just saying that I think everyone kind of just took the same idea and maybe puts their own little spin on it. And then a lot of times it goes into a room and things get rewritten and re- and like we didn't come up with Scott's Tots. I think Paul did, but we we have a large hand in what that final version is. And Dinner Party was not our idea. <coughs> God bless you. <coughs> Sorry. Oh my God. God, I was trying to hold that in because you were sounding so good. Should I come back Sorry. tomorrow? No. <laughs> no, but so anyway, so I think like Dinner Party, there were a million jokes that the room generated and then Gene and I went off and added tons and tons of our own stuff, took things from the room, didn't take things from the room, put spins on it. We spent, usually you would get a week, you know, some episodes, three or four days. We spent three weeks on dinner party. And so like, we were just determined to make that great. We just loved it. And we were competitive and petty. Right. And we just, and we, you know, we, we wanted to hit it out of the park. And so we just spent way more time on it than we would have usually. How much were you thinking about who's afraid of Virginia Woolf when you were writing it? That was always the template for it. But I mean, you know, from that, it was just like, okay, let's just bring this cast of characters. And also like, who would Michael bring to the dinner party? And, you know, how do you kind of keep ratcheting it up in in one location? That episode unfolds in a way where you feel like something bad is going to happen, even when bad things aren't happening. Right. You just It feels uncomfortable. You just, you just know that it's not great. But Michael presents very well. Like Steve is so handsome. Laura's beautiful. They look good. The, the, the condo is like well-decorated. And right. then it just slowly, 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 you start seeing these little things. Well, and just the time things take oh, I think yeah. adds to what you're taught. You're like, you just, it's that, oh man, the shark is about to bite the lady's but leg, the, right? There are certain episodes in comedy in general usually has a real pace to it. It's like you get to the jokes and the office existed in the, in the reaction shots. Like John is a brilliant reactor and that's why Jim gets tons of laughs and why he's the audience surrogate. But it's not like, writing jokes for him was not the easiest part of the show in the way that writing for Dwight or writing for Michael is because those characters are more inherently comic, but you could still get the laugh on the reaction. You thought of Jim as a surrogate for the show. Well, did you think you were the surrogate for the show? No, I didn't. No, I'm asking. (laughs) You just looked at me so sad. No, 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 no. No, I kind of think, I think that whenever, yeah, I think he was the everyman. He had the crush on the girl. So I feel like at least as a guy related to him the most. Okay. And I think John has kind of an everyman quality. It's almost like, a little bit of like Lloyd Dobler and say anything or something like that. And when he looks to the camera, when someone's saying, when Michael's saying something inappropriate, you felt like, yes, this is me. Yeah. No, it's, it's great. I mean, so you're, fa- oh, wait, I have, I have an anecdote. Okay, go ahead. You want an anecdote? Yeah, I want an anecdote. Um, I love anecdotes. So we wrote dinner party. I just thought of this when So we wrote dinner party and we were proud of it. And I can't remember if this was before or after the right strike. I think it was before. And Greg pulled this into his office because we were getting notes from the network. And they said, uh, hey, so we read the script. It's very funny. And Greg said, thank you. And they said, it's, it's really dark. And Greg goes, yeah. And they go, you know, just the thing about it is it's, it's really dark. And Greg goes, yeah. And they go, just, it's, it's really dark. He goes, yeah. And then he says, uh, is there anything else? And they go, nope. And he goes, okay, great. Thanks, guys. Bye. And it hung up. And I was like, Wow, that was fucking cool. Because it was just, they were basically saying to Greg, like, we can't shoot it like this. This is way too dark and depressing. And he was very polite. He said about three words. And then that was it. And then, I mean, Greg had so much power at that point with them. And the show was successful enough 
and I don't think if that was the pile of the show that it would have would have passed. Right. But uh, at that moment, that was it. And then we and then we didn't change the script. I mean, we changed things out of necessity, but we didn't change anything based on the network's notes. I was. Kinda... I always think about that though. So he just felt like such a gangster. And he if you know said, Grant, right. he's not a gangster. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. But it was a very gangster move, and it was just really. He had earned. He had earned the right to do that. He was. He was totally polite about it. But he just. He also backed us up. That's amazing. He backed up a lot of people. Yeah. Well, so, you know, you only know what you know. I've only worked on one show that wasn't mine. It was The Office. So the only frame of reference that I have for running a show is Greg. So the way that I try to run a show is like Greg, and you empower writers, and you like. I solicit advice from everyone. And by the way, Greg has really strong opinions, and it right. wasn't like the show was done by committee. But a lot of people don't give you those responsibilities up top. Right. Um, you and Gene wrote the episode that is considered the most difficult to watch in The Office, which is Scott's Tots. Yeah. Are you proud of that? Uh, incredibly, yeah. Nothing makes me happier. <laughs> that, that, I mean, other things make me happier, but I'm very I'm No very one pleased. wants to watch it. You're really pleased about that. Well, I think that it's, the comic premise is so strong. And then it's like, what can you do just to like keep turning the screw and just make it feel worse and worse? Like when they start dancing, Michael's just sitting there and he also loves performance and he loves dance, <laughs> but he also knows that like he can't get out of this. I mean, it was just, it was incredible. There's something else that Gene and I talk about a lot in our writing, which is we love jokes where you get an insight into the world, like that you're creating canon for the show that you actually don't see on camera. Right. So the end of that episode, the kind of bookending of Scott's Tots is Michael doesn't like Aaron. He misses Pam as his assistant and they're driving back and he says, you know, you're really good at your job or whatever. And he says, I have an instinct about people. I don't know if you remember this. And he says, Kevin, when he first came in, he was actually applying for a job in the warehouse. Right. And then I made him an accountant. Right. And it's just like, you are a terrible, terrible boss. Right. And he's kind of saying in this way where it's like, <laughs> I, I see people, I can kind of tap in. And it's like the idea that like Kevin came in for a different job. And he was like, you know what? I'm going to pluck you out of the- uh, <laughs> You don't need to be in the warehouse. You don't need to be in the warehouse. I see, uh, you're good with numbers, aren't you? And yeah. Then, yeah. <laughs> and then that all of a sudden, Kevin is this hapless accountant. Like we love moments like that where it's just I like love that. It's just like for the audience of the you know the fans that watch every episode. It's like so in the backstory of these two guys, there was an interview where he's like, "Hey, you know what? Why do you stick up here with me?" <laughs> oh, that's so good. Bean Dad, the dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation. I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials (laughs) cover-up. You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you were writing, you mentioned it before, there was a writer's strike. Yeah. What was your relationship to it? Were you in support of it, or how difficult was it? Well... So we had written Dinner Party. We did the table read of it. And I mean, Gene and I talk about it to this day. The opening of Dinner Party is, is good. It's not great. It's basically that Michael tells everyone they have to stay at work late. And they've clearly created this thing so that Jim and Pam will have to come to his house for a dinner party. And so the cold open's pretty funny. And so we're doing the table read. And it's just like, it's a good table read. It's not a great table read. It's good. Then you get to the apartment and 
you start feeling something like it became explosive and like people are looking at each other and it was like it was electric in a way that i can't i'm thinking about it now and like it makes me emotional about that time 100 percent sweat through his shirt and it was just like it was the greatest moment of our career and then there was this writer's strike and the studios have billions of dollars and they're always trying to roll back these things and it can come down to health insurance and it can come down to uh, residuals and the way that writers are getting paid and things were changing. And it's like, that's all the backstory for it. But as a writer, we're there and they started shooting dinner party without us and the actors didn't know what to do. And we're picketing with the other writers outside of the place that we work, that we'd spent, we spent all our time. You guys are all our friends. We're friends with the crew. The crew's walking past us. Some of them are kind of looking at us like, fuck you, because they can't afford, you know, the writers are among the highest paid people. And all of a sudden, someone's going to not work for three months because we're complaining about our DVD residuals. And is the show going to come back? What's going what's to happen? And we're literally picketing outside of the place where we work. It's a really, really weird thing. And so then it was like, is this episode that we wrote that we're so proud of, is it not going to happen? And then, and then we ended up shooting it and we, and we got a different director and Paul Feig ended up directing it. He wasn't going to direct it initially and it became what it became, but it's a really complicated thing where on one hand, it's like the writers look like assholes because they're striking and it's like, well, they're striking against the studio. So it's all, it's all people that make hundreds of millions of dollars who control billions of dollars. And it's like, they're crying poverty. And then the writers who some writers make a ton of money and some writers don't. They're crying poverty and saying, we want what's fair. You know, and the studios are saying, we're, we're trying to do what's fair. Every day there's negotiations. I mean, it's really confusing and it's really hard to say what the gains are for all these things sometimes. Right. Do you remember what the context was of us stopping production? Oh, well, there were no writers on set. And so then what happened, I think Steve, Steve was in the Writers Guild and then Steve started striking. And I think when Steve said he wouldn't act, then I think it kind of became, okay, well, if Steve's not going to do it, then John and Jenna wouldn't do it. Then Ray, you know what I mean? And it, everyone just kind of stopped. And there wasn't enough to do. If Steve didn't act, you could shoot some talking heads, but you couldn't go to the condo. And so then it just went away. Right. Um, talk about your transition to directing. How was that for you? I mean, having a new relationship with these people you'd known for so long. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, we did, the first thing we did is we did webisodes. And Greg kind of said, like, if you do these and do a good job with them, then we'll give you the shot. And and you're just kind of, you're just approaching a little bit differently. Like, you're really thinking about composition and how you're telling jokes visually. You're talking to the actors in a different way. And I think when you're a writer, producer on the show, you say something to the director and then the director's deciding how to convey that to the actor. And as the show went on, like, you know, the shorthand between you and me or whoever changed and the directors were usually the ones who are kind of coming in. But the director still had, like, okay, I need to pull off this shot. I want to make sure that I get this, that we go tight here. And so they have an agenda and that agenda does include my notes, but like they also have their agenda. And as a director, it's like, it's just mine and Gene's. And so it was like, you could kind of cut through it a little bit more, but it's fun. I mean, and it's scary. And you're like, we're like, you can't, the only person you can blame is yourself. That's exactly what I was going to say. Cause I, you know, I directed as well. And I remember the feeling of like, it's just me deciding when we've we've shot enough and that it's right, good you're enough. These, yeah, you're making these you're decisions. Ma- and, and once the like, camera's off, it's like, well, what? W- wait a minute. What about? No, but at every other time, there's like, there's endless possibility, right? You right. can kind of write forever, kind of, or you can edit indefinitely. But shooting is just kind of like, this is what we got. Like, 
I don't know why Brian's not funny in this scene. I thought it was funny on the page. Like, what are we doing wrong to not, right. you know what I mean? And you just, and you have to think on the fly and yeah. that's scary. I remember also when we first started writing on the show and the script was finished and it was like, okay, all right, so we're going to shoot this. And there was no fanfare. It was just like, okay, the script's done from the, right. the writer's room. And I was always like, it can't be our script that you're just, doesn't Greg like take it for a week and make it good? Like, what do you mean? Like that we wrote something that now is going to be shot in air because we'd never done it before. It just right. seemed like absurd. It felt like, well, where are the professionals that are going to fix it? And then it becomes very scary when you realize that you're the professional. You're the professional yeah. who is deciding. Yeah. So a lot of the writers were actors. But none as famous. You're, you you were an actor on the show as well. I was, yes. What was your character's name again? I was an actor near the show. <laughs> what was your character's name? Well, so- You were delivery guy. Yeah, we worked at Vance Refrigeration. Yes. Gene and I obviously had to do everything together on the show. Right. And so we were Leo and Gino, but That's we right. thought it'd be funny. I think it was my idea. It was a terrible idea that I'd be Gino and that Gene would be Leo. And so it was incredibly confusing- and I remember Melora Harden <laughs> having no idea. She knew that she knew that we were named Lee and Jean, but couldn't for the life of her know which one was which. <laughs> and Jean kept saying that he was going to walk past Melora and say, "Hey, Jean, are you ready for?" <laughs> Are you ready to go to the writer's room so that she would never know? And then occasionally we'd say, Lee, that was the thing that we did. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, but we were in, um, if you talk about cutting room floor, no characters in the history of the office were more consistently on the cutting room floor than Leo and Gino. How many episodes did Leo and Gino do? I think I was in five. I sold Michael Weed. Gene, I sell Michael Weed in whatever that one's called. We're like, we sell, we sell him oregano. Oh, uh, yes. Um. Then we're in Cafe Disco. We dance in Cafe Disco. Right. I had a reel made of my acting. Did you? I really I need it. I spoke at my college and I basically, I said like, my passion is acting and then I write just so I have, I can perform, which is not at all true. Right. So I, I cut together like my two minute reel and it has me, I mean, I've acted opposite Jack Black. I've acted opposite Cameron Diaz and Steve Carell. Right. And then obviously you and- Me. You and- Why did I get mentioned after those three? Um, I was doing a reverse uh, alphabetical order. Okay. And no, that's not true because Jack Black shit. <laughs> but it was, D- I was Diaz, Diaz Carell, Baumgartner. That's, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I, almost like on my feet. But um, yeah, it's about two minutes long. I can only remember about three lines at once. So I can never do more than that. Yeah. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation, I don't feel like I have to get married at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating. And a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous of your generation (laughs) that didn't have to deal with Instagram and Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up... (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels. A story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, how do you think the office has influenced who you are now as a writer? Again, it's just like that's all I know. I'm. It's possible that another, you know, had I worked on Jake in Progress starring John Stamos. I, I was on that show, by the way. Oh, with really? Julie Bowen. See, yes. we would have we would have met under different circumstances. Right, we would have. We would have known each other for a day. Um, I can't believe you just pulled Jake in progress. I, well, with the, John the, Stamos out of your head. Well, well, the reason I say it, no, I'm true. Uh, when Gene and I got hired on The Office, no one had any interest in us for years, and we got an offer on The Office. We got an offer on Jake in Progress, and we got an offer on American Dad. Okay, American Dad was 22 episodes. Jake in Progress, I think, was 13, or maybe it was 22, and The Office was six with seven backup scripts. 
Got it. And we chose The Office. And then we ended up writing the first of the backup scripts. So there was a version where they would have shot six episodes and then the fight was going to be the seventh right. one shot. And if they didn't decide to pick up the seven backup scripts and turn them into the episodes, then we would just would have had like an office spec. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. No, but I think like every writer or every showrunner has their like their ways of like, there's this number of scenes in an act and what every scene needs to accomplish these three things. And I think the things that I think of when I think of Greg are like comedy engines and like what makes a character inherently funny. And so I, what is Michael Scott like at a funeral? What is Michael Scott like at a, a wedding? What is Michael Scott like at a supermarket or Dwight or Kevin? And you think about these characters that have clear, have clear comedy engines. And when you like, you can say what Dwight would be like at the supermarket. It's like, because he's a fully formed character. And when you start writing your own shit and you are like, what is Edward do at the supermarket you're like well he buys the groceries and maybe right. he argues and you're like why does he argue is he loud you know what i mean like you start questioning these things and that's how a character becomes a character and not someone who just delivers lines because edward is the cop that needs to solve the murder you know what i mean right 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 um and then the other thing you used to do was strange pairings which i always thought was so fun so we'd have all the characters up on a board and be like what's a kevin creed story what's an oscar michael story and some of those were great stories that just never went in, but like that's how you get weird stuff like Dwight spying on Oscar in The Secret and they become friends. And you know what I mean? Like you start thinking about, so it's not just like if all the stories are just the accountants together, then that feels like, oh, I know where the office is going. But if Kevin and Dwight form a band together, which was something that we talked about at one point, right. then it's like, okay, well now, right, Kevin's a musician and Dwight's a musician and now you have a different thing going. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Was there, is there an episode that you were most proud of writing? I mean, I, I probably dinner party is the one I'm most proud of. I think that's probably the best thing that Gene and I have ever written collectively. We wrote the secret and that was where Jim tells Michael, well, he told Michael he had a crush on Pam, but Michael reveals it to everyone. And then Jim has to tell Pam and the, I remember in the break room and says, Hey, like Michael, I told Michael that I used to have a crush on you and I don't anymore. And I just, it was kind of the first time as a writer that I'd written anything that just didn't really have any jokes in it. And it was just the way that I think everyone's been in the situation where you have a crush on someone right. and they find out. And it was just, and Jenna and John just acted it so, so well. There's tiny things like Jenna, like her eyebrows furrowed for like a nanosecond. And like every time I saw it in editing, I just, I got choked up because he says, I, I don't like, I don't have a crush on, don't worry, I don't have a crush on you anymore. She's like, oh, okay, phew. And just- it felt real in a way. And I think we tried writing it that way. And like, I just was really excited about that, you know? And so I think that felt more challenging to get that right than it did to get a Dwight talking head about, you know, how delicious, like the different parts of a possum are. Right. right. Which was probably written several times. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, the show was a success. It was a hit. Why in your mind, why has it become the number one show on television? Now, why have people become so invested in it? I think that it feels, I think it feels nostalgic. I think that the jokes are timeless. I think there's a really strong love story. I don't know what that show is now that has that compelling love story and has the jokes like Friends or The Office. Um, so I don't know what would be the equivalent of it. So I think if that's the type of thing that, that you're excited about, it's like, where are you going for it? Right. And I also think that Netflix is this thing where people just have it on nonstop. 
now you can watch five episodes in a row and you start kind of getting addicted and they're 21 minutes long and you're not watching with commercials and it just feels like you can just devour it. Right. And then the other thing, like I did that movie, Good Boys, it was three 12 year old boys and one of them was obsessed with The Office and I think like they're watching it through a totally different prism and it's like, Kevin's their favorite character, Dwight's their favorite character. And I think all of a sudden there's elements of the show that appeal to an audience that doesn't really care about Jim and Pam. Do you know what I mean? And so I think that's the type of show also where a family of four can watch it and everyone's kind of getting something else out of it, but they all love it. And I think that the show feels lived in the texture of it. You, the audience appreciates the texture, even if that's not the way they would articulate it, it feels like everyone's been in that office. And then I think the other thing is, and this is again, the genius of Greg and Allison Jones and, Everyone is, I cannot think of a show, a comedy that has a a roster of like, I mean, how many actors were there? 14 or whatever. Yeah, That's a crazy thing to service that many people. And so it doesn't feel like a sea of extras. It feels like wherever you turn, you're delighted by what you're going to see. And as a writer where you're like, oh, great, we're going to do a Stanley talking head next. Perfect. We have BJ coming up in a scene with Phyllis. Okay, excellent. Like, you know what I mean? Like there was no place where it was like, oh shit, here's a weak link. We have to write around this thing or we can't shoot this way because, right. you know, whatever. The ensemble and the specificity of that ensemble in the small moments and in the big moments was what kind of made the show the show too. Like as a writer, that's what I'm delighted about. Like I, I don't write political satire. I think like the only thing I'm good at in my life is kind of just watching people at restaurants and at dinner parties and on subways. And then like I'm, astute enough to like write it down in my iPhone in the notes document. Right. And like, that's how I have a career. Like I think writers approach things and I think you're just delighted by those small moments and it's, it's what feels real. And I think if you can write anything where either the joke is resonant as like, I've experienced this thing with my friends or this lame, this lame thing. Like I remember we did the thing where uh, everyone, you know, bumps fists and then explodes it. Right. And that was based on a friend of mine did it. And I thought it was the dumbest thing. And then for years, like, that's just something I did. No, I didn't do it, but I'm saying I brought it to the office. Right. The exploding hand That's thing. all Kevin ever did. Yeah. Because like my friend did it and I thought it was really lame. And I was like, oh, you know, <laughs> you know, we should do it. Are the lame characters on my show that I work on. And, you know, that's what she said is like that. And I think these things like Gene came up with um, Andy goes to Cornell. Like he was able to tap into this weird insecurity where these really smart people w- go to a school that is an Ivy League school, but feels like a less than Ivy League school. And it, it said everything about a character. And I think when you can come up with those things, you know, interacting with the warehouse guys or anything like that, where it's like these small moments where it's like everyone just trying to get by. Everyone wants to fall in love. Everyone wants to make more money. Everyone wants to get the promotion at work. And everyone just wants to feel like they're connected to something. And in a weird way, all these people, that in any other circumstance would not be friends, you end up having to work with them and you create these bonds. That's the beauty of everything, right? It's like when all these people can kind of come together and it's like you spend more time with the people that you work with than you do with your own family. Right. And, you know, then again, we did a show about a, about the thing that we were, right? So right. you spent more time with Angela than you did with your significant right. other or whatever. Right. And I think that, I think that's cool. I think that's really worth exploring. And I do think it's beautiful. Yeah. And I'm a great writer. <laughs> I can't remember who I was talking to, somebody associated with the show the other day. Who was it? Oh, you know who it was? It was Ben Silverman. 
okay. <laughs> who controlled me to be on this podcast when I should be working on other things. Um, and he said, you know, this is going to be for all of us. This is the kind of the thing that people will talk about in your career. And I was like, okay, like, that's cool. I mean, you know, it's not, it doesn't mean I stop working and I don't want to beat it. But if at the end of my career for five years, I worked on a show that's considered one of the best comedies of all time. And I feel like I contributed quite a bit to it. And I met all these great people. And I remember like summer camp and summer camp, you would go back every summer and like, you would kind of intend to keep in touch with people over the thing, but then you kind of have your school friends. Then you come back and like, for those four weeks, you would just be like, my best friend, Brian and I were doing this and then right, right. like, you'd be like, we have to keep in touch. We have to keep in touch, man. <laughs> and then you wouldn't. And then you'd see them again the next year and it'd be the same thing. And it's like, I see Greg for lunch once or twice a year. It excites me every single time I do it. I see Paul, all the relationships matter to me. And it's like, it kind of in a way like transcends frequency of seeing someone. You just, I just built all these connections and my entire career can be traced back to Greg reading a pilot about two codependent magicians. Right. And, you know what I mean? And saying like, yeah, I'll pick those guys. And then everything else that's happened came from that. Awesome. Um, your contribution to the show, I mean, I don't have to tell you, you know how important it is, but your friendship is so important to me and I respect you and think you're one of the most talented people I've ever worked with. So thank you so much. Thank you, dude. Yeah. This was so fun. I love that so much. I, I truly learned so much from Lee, and I am so glad I got to share it with all of you. Lee, my friend, you can buy me breakfast anytime. Okay? <laughs> anytime. Uh, and to all of you listeners, thank you. We will be back next week with another hilarious, strange, and brilliant mind from our writer's room. It's going to be great. I don't know who it's going to be, but it is going to be great. In the meantime, all of you have a fantastic week. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our producer is Emily Carr. And our assistant editor is Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. 
And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.